0: Hello, everybody. My name is Marshall Poe, and welcome to New Books in History. Every week, or when we get the chance, we interview a historian with a new book, a book that we find particularly interesting, and we hope that you'll find these books interesting as well. Um, Today we have on the show Kevin Mumford. He's my colleague in the History Department at the University of Iowa, and he has a new book out. It's called Newark, A History of Race, Rights, and Riots in America. It was recently issued by New York University Press, actually in 2007. Kevin, as some of you may know, is a a distinguished scholar of African-American history and the civil rights movement. He's also the author of another book that came out in 1997 from Columbia University Press called Interzones, Black-White Sex Districts in Chicago and New York in the Early 20th Century. Um, We're very pleased, as I said, to have Kevin on the show today talking about his book, Newark, A History of Race, Rights, and Riots in America. Here's the interview. We hope you enjoy it. Hi, Kevin. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, Marshall? I'm very well. Well, we're very glad to have you today on New Books in History. Um, it's a reasonably new show. This is a kind of a test, so to say. So I have dragooned all of my colleagues with new <laughs> books, Kevin Mumford being one of them, into talking to us. Um, his new book is called Newark, A History of Race, Rights, and Riots in America. And it just came out from New York University Press. And as I say, you know, thank you very much for being on the show today. We really appreciate it.
1: Well, I'm looking forward to talking to you and about my book.
0: Good. Well, I'd like to start with a few biographical questions, if you don't mind. Why don't you tell us, of all things, where you grew up?
1: Okay. (laughs) I actually talk about this in the introduction to the book, um, and it seems like, uh, in the introduction, I think maybe it sounds like I'm angry at my hometown because I I criticize it uh, for, what I say, invisibly uh, invisibly privileging whiteness. Uh Uh-huh. But uh, but actually I I am very fond of Madison Wisconsin Madison is, Wisconsin yeah yes. which is where I grew up in the, the capital of Wisconsin the college town um, right. of the University of Wisconsin uh huh yeah so
0: um, and what, I, did you, what did your parents do there and how did you how did they get there and what's the do you have some story there you want
1: to okay tell? my uh, my mom was born in Milwaukee. Uh, the uh, the daughter of of uh, of Eastern European immigrants, uh-huh. and my father was uh, came after he got out of the Air Force. Oh really? He was uh, yes. He's, he was he uh, was he's African American. He was born in North Carolina uh-huh. and was kind of a, a rebel, and so went off to serve um, overseas in England for a couple of years and came right? back and was looking for his sister, who um, had somehow I don't remember had somehow ended up in Wisconsin. So he. Landed in Madison, um, and, uh, eventually started to date my mother, uh-huh. um, who is white. Uh-huh. So this was in the early 60s when it was, this was something that was legal in Wisconsin, but in much, certainly in the South and right. other parts of the U.S., this was not the thing to do. Exactly. Uh, but they, uh, went on and then my father decided to go to school and they both, uh, ended up graduating from the university and settled there.
0: Really? Well, it must have been very unusual to be, uh, I, I guess what what is the right word biracial in Madison, Wisconsin?
1: Yeah, it was um it's certainly much more it, it's certainly uh more common today than it than it was uh back then.
0: Yeah, but still pretty um, uncommon, I think. Say that again? <laughs> but still pretty uncommon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um so how did you become where did you go as an undergraduate and how did you become I, interested
1: in I stayed in, in town. <laughs>
0: oh, did you really? I
1: actually that's what I'm saying. I actually, you know, I was uh uh, very very um, content it, with the kind of progressive. Um, it, there was still a flavor of, of 60s activism even as, even into the 80s. Uh-huh. It, there was a sense of counterculture and yep. alternative um, scene, you know, college town scene. So I was you know f- fairly content just to to, uh, to to go to undergraduate in Wisconsin. And I took my first history course. I think when I was a freshman I took an advanced course on the Civil War. Uh-huh. Both my parents had taken history, especially my mom and demanded that I, you know, take take a a course in what was then considered, you know, kind of one of the best history departments in the in the country.
0: And of, I think still China. one of the best history departments in the country.
1: Yeah, and so and I like aced the course and said, "Wow, I I like this. The the lectures are so interesting." Uh, and so I uh, started to To uh, become a history major, and I also was doing um, African American studies. I took equal numbers of courses in in, both. Uh huh.
0: I see. I see. So they had an Afro AM um, division there, or department?
1: Yeah, African American Mm -hmm. studies was a large department. I mean, you know, uh, for a midwestern school, it was uh, founded back in the late 1960s, and it was uh, had a number of of top in civil uh-huh. rights and African-American literature, mm-hmm. and uh, so I combined that with uh, legal history. Mm-hmm. I was really interested in kind of constitution and, yeah. uh, and civil shows, rights issues.
0: Well, it shows, it shows in the book, actually. So let's move forward a little bit, and then um, you um, uh, knock him dead in Wisconsin and go <laughs> elsewhere for graduate school. Where did you go?
1: I went to uh, Stanford, so this is like uh, 1987. Uh-huh. I started out to do a doctoral, uh, doc, doctorate program in U.S. history at Stanford, uh-huh. and I, of course I have culture shock moving from Madison to Palo Alto, Yeah, uh, but um, I had a very nice uh, I, I was very fortunate to kind of fall into, within a num- with a number of um, uh, folks who were doing stuff that was going to be really interesting to me so i was working with people who were doing the history of racism Uh and also um the history of sexuality which was kind of a field that was just getting invented at the time so it was kind of like you know i thought oh, i don't know how i'm gonna like stanford but it turned out that i was uh i fell into the right group
0: yeah i mean you're Experience and mine are sort of parallel in a way because I came – I was actually an undergraduate in Iowa at Grinnell College, and I grew up in Kansas, and then I went to Berkeley for graduate school, and I had the same sort of I, – I did have culture shock. Yeah. I, I think that when I applied to graduate school, I was thinking of Stanford, but I ended up at Berkeley. I just uh-huh. didn't realize that I was – going to, you know, be in this extraordinarily progressive, very urban environment. I kind of thought of green lawns and, you know, large monumental buildings, that kind of thing, which is what you have at Stanford and not at Berkeley. So Right. <laughs> it was,
1: yeah, it was kind of like I would go for, I would expect to be going down like a State Street or a Telegraph Avenue and all of a sudden there would be nothing but a quad yeah. um, and bicycles. And I thought, oh, this is this is crazy. But um, like yeah. I said, the intellectual environment was wonderful.
0: Yeah, well, it was at Berkeley as well. Although I will say that I, in order to complete my dissertation, I had to leave California because I found myself doing too many other things.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I actually did finish up my dissertation. Back home in Madison. Oh, did you really?
0: Yeah, no. I finished mine in Massachusetts, where the the winters are bad and the summers are worse, Um, (laughs) and the people are not as nice. Uh, Don't tell the people of Cambridge I said that. Uh, They may hear it. Um, So, who is your dissertation advisor?
1: My my dissertation. I actually had co-advisors, but I had a. I had Estelle Friedman was like uh, the director, and she's very very good at at um, organizing me and prodding me. And I took a great deal of inspiration, which I also acknowledge um in my uh in my uh, acknowledgments from George Fredrickson uh-huh. Who was kind of a his, who who had done these sort of um, really impressive books on comparative
0: racism between uh-huh. the United States and South Africa. Uh-huh. I see, and so they were good mentors. They were very yeah, they were excellent mentors. <laughs> and you would recommend Stanford as a graduate school? <laughs> oh uh,
1: yes, I would. I work hard, read a lot. <laughs> yeah
0: no, it's certainly in a nice place. That much I will attest. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so were there other historians that particularly influenced you early in your career? You know, people that you said, you know, I want to write a book like this fellow wrote?
1: Hmm.
0: Or a woman, I suppose?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, certainly when I was at Wisconsin, I was very, you know, I was really, really impressed by this guy, uh, Stanley Cutler, Mm -hmm. who was a um, kind of famous historian of uh, legal history and particularly of Watergate. Uh He knows everything about Watergate. Really? And um, then... Um, at the same time, I was reading these essays by martin duberman, uh-huh. and uh, he was a very early uh writer on um gay history uh-huh. and I was really impressed with the sort of just the way he wrote uh-huh. and, i mean i didn 't he had done these sort of biographies on like mid nineteenth century wasps and uh-huh. reformers, and that wasn 't very interesting, but when he would start to write about gay history, there was a certain there was a certain flair and a certain um, engagement in his writing that I found. I mean, very n-
0: not not to digress from the book, uh, but this is very interesting, because I remember when I was at Berkeley, gay history as such was just getting started. Mm-hmm. Um, I, who are the founders of gay history? I don't really know. But I do remember there were graduate students who had come to Berkeley in the mid-'80s. Michel Foucault had been there. Right. And he was one of the pioneers of gay history, but I, I don't yeah. really know who picked up the torch thereafter.
1: Well, it was, you know, it it's... It, slow to develop, and I think certainly uh, in the United States, it, it was uh, Martin Duberman used his visibility uh-huh. um, and had started to write essays uh-huh. but hadn't written um, um, you know, full-length uh, monographs yet. Uh-huh. And then, uh, jo- a man named Jonathan Katz in New York had uh-huh. done these anthologies which had tons of, of documents.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And so that was really the kind of framework was just kind of documentary histories. And then uh, John Danilio wrote a book that came out around 1982 on social movements and gay politics. Uh So I would, I would say that those are, and then he, those as you pointed out, you know, yeah, the theoretical foundations of people like. So,
0: is there an institutional structure now for gay history? Again, I'm sorry about these tangents, but I just don't
1: know. Yeah, um, I, I think yeah, you know, now I think it's the history of sexuality has become a, a much more popular field. Uh, yeah. Graduate students can, you know, can work in the social history of sexuality and mm-hmm. cultural studies and feel like they can get jobs. So now I think the institutional framework is is within history departments and literature departments. And yeah, no, there's, I think also a, there's also a couple of journals. There's the Journal of History of Sexuality, which yeah, is like so the, I've first, seen that. the first um, – I did a graduate, uh, I did a seminar paper on the history of impotence when I was <laughs> really? the first research paper wow. I ever
0: did, and I published it in the Journal of History. Wow,
1: because I, so back in the day, I,
0: I do remember back in the day again that. Uh This was in the 80s, and Tom Lecour, who was at Berkeley, was writing. Mm -hmm. He was writing this 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 monumental book. I believe it's called Making Sex. Right. That actually was was very good, and he was doing the research on it. And he would come running into the seminar room or running into a lecture class, explaining that he had discovered something incredible about masturbation or something. And (laughs) there was a lot of wide-eyed kind of what are you talking about (sighs) sort of thing. But anyway, no, I'm glad to you know it's it must be it's kind of heady stuff to be there at the moment of a founding of a field. I I envy you in that way. Um, You know my own field, Russian history was founded in the nineteenth century <laughs> right, and has progressed very little. <laughs> don't tell other Russian historians I said that. I don't really mean it. It's obviously progressed a lot um but uh let's uh, go on to the book now if that's all right um okay. how did you How did you come to write this particular book about newark?
1: well um there's a couple of answers. One is that I was sort of at a crossroads in terms of I had just turned my dissertation into a book, and it was out, and I had not been traditional in the way that I approached jobs, so I kind of was like, oh, I don't know if I want a job here. I don't know if I want to. So I was out on the East Coast, and I was sort of adjuncting, and I was thinking I was you know, trying to think of what my next project would be. And one of the, and I was really, for some reason, I was really interested in statistics and the census. Mm-hmm. I don't know why, but for some reason, this was interesting to me. And so I started to realize that, um, that the migration from the south had a much bigger impact, not during the Great Migration, which is what U.S. historians have always focused on up to up until up until recently, but mm-hmm. really in the post-war period in the 1950s and the 1960s. Uh-huh. I see. Yeah. So I was just learning that. I was learning that men and women arrived in equal numbers. That that you know the the transformation in terms of demography um, and, and more African Americans in the north happened. In the 50s and the 60s, and and so forth. So it was learning about that that made me want to study some aspect of of the impact.
0: Of, so you kind of you know, kind of in a classical scientific, almost Thomas Cuney, sense discovered <laughs> a, you discovered an anomaly. You know, it was,
1: well it, kind of it, of... it was an anomaly, and then all of a sudden, what was interesting was then there were some books that came out. That were I didn't know about, but that were in the making. Like for example, I can remember exactly when I was at Rutgers using the census, and all of a sudden, I checked out a book by Tom Seguru, uh Thomas Segrew, which has become the uh, book on on um, on black urbanization and deindustrialization, which makes it precisely this not exactly this point, but is set in the post-war period in the 40s right. and the 50s. And so, um, but I was still, so this sort of began to tune me into sort of these issues. And meanwhile, I got a teaching job at Newark, uh, Rutgers, Newark, mm-hmm. in Newark, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And so I started to read the African American newspaper there during the summer, yeah. and it was either when I was teaching or right after I was done teaching or something like that, and with with that semester. And so I discovered um, all these really interesting stories of people that were complaining about um, segregation and Jim Crow mm-hmm. and in public accommodations mm-hmm. in the 1940s. Right, right. And I was not prepared I had not expected this. And then no. I didn't really see this this kind of discussion in the literature or in Sugrue's book and other people's work mm-hmm. of you know just this kind of extensive uh, uh, almost caste-like Segregation of blood, of swimming pools, of department stores, of coffee shops, mm-hmm. of restaurants, over mm-hmm. and over and over again,
0: mm-hmm.
1: in a northern city, um, in the
0: 1940s. Oh, why do you think, just to digress again for a second, why do you think it didn't get very much attention?
1: I'm not sure. It's hard. I, I the first of all, I think it was because people had, pay, you know, African American history has been. Relatively slow to develop, and it's picked up a lot of steam in the last ten years. Yep. But we're talking about um, that everybody followed the 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 you know kind of what was already there, which was the old Carter G. Woodson, who's a founder of African American history, who wrote about the Great Migration at the time. Mm-hmm. And so people just began to, you know in the midst of ghettoization in the 60s and the 70s, they thought, oh, well, how did this form? And so they went back to the, you know, the initial um, blip of uh, Southern in migration and kind of left it at that. And Mm so I, that's kind of just where it had been in, in many different cities. So huh. every city, you know, Pittsburgh and Chicago and New York and Milwaukee, they, you know, each person that was kind of like this factory of great migration studies.
0: Right. And so then what you discovered was that there was a large and sort of unseen influx of African-Americans from, I guess, the South to these northern cities during right. and after the war. And this hadn't right. really been paid attention to. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then keep
1: coming. Yeah. And then and continued and accelerated and without, you know, uh in the fifties and the fifties and the sixties without the push pull, you know, I mean it would have always been, well, because there was war and there was a shortage of European labor there was a pull factor of, um, you know, of factories needing needing laborers, right. and so therefore African. But there was no, this is during deindustrialization, and mm-hmm. yet you still have, you know, increased uh, percentages of black migration.
0: Yeah, I mean, I see what you mean. I mean, my impression, again, as somebody that uh, really knows quite little about these things, uh, was that the Great Migration moved those African-American populations into the northern cities, mm-hmm. and then um, uh, due to white flight after the war, uh, ghettos appeared, or they were ghettoized. But you tell quite a different story, if I'm not incorrect.
1: Yeah, I I I don't think that that's all true. But I I the story is um, one of uh, sort of intent, a lot more a sense of agency. That is, African Americans uh, seeking out the cities, choosing to stay in cities. You look at you look at some of these some um, uh, race relations polls or surveys that are done by the cities in the 50s and then after the riots in the 60s. And African-Americans are, you know, saying that they are happy to be in Newark there. They have no intention of moving. They don't want to move to uh, the suburbs for many reasons. Maybe they don't feel welcome, but also because they have, a, you know, a real stake in the civic culture and in the in the uh, vitality of the city.
0: Yeah, I see what you mean. So could you be a bit uh, specific uh, just so that people understand? Because, I mean, in, I, I, my own impression is that mm-hmm. people uh, – forget what Jim Crow looked like, Uh because it's just so far from our mentalities now. But could you describe some of the forms of segregation and racism that you discovered in uh, Newark during World War II and immediately after?
1: Yeah, well, there was was segregation in, you know, really in everything. So there was segregation in swimming pools. There was a black swimming pool and -hmm. there were white swimming pools. There were bathhouses that had gone up in the late 19th century, uh-huh. and I believe only one of the bathhouses um, admitted African Americans.
0: Uh-huh.
1: There was segregated. Um, there were segregated Red Cross facilities. Mm-hmm. Um, there was uh, a black YMCA mm-hmm. and, and a white YMCA, and also. Even though in the late 19th century, in 1883 and in 1884, they had passed equal accommodations laws, state-level equal accommodations laws, and also a measure for um, African Americans to have access to education. There should be no barring of uh, African American children in education Mm -hmm. and public schools. There was still almost total... Uh, segregation of schools so that by the time of the early 1940s, the NAACP sends in investigators across the state of New Jersey mm-hmm. and they write up, you know, uh, uh, dozens and dozens of cases of townships and, and so forth that, uh, have completely segregated, uh, schools. So there are absolutely no, uh-huh. uh, white, there's a separate, there's a black hospital into the 1940s. Really? Yeah, um, African American doctors cannot practice at the white hospital.
0: Uh huh. I see. That's interesting. So, how did this uh, come about? I mean, the law was on the side of the anti-segregationists, and I Correct. suppose that sort of right, right. right-thinking people knew that it was wrong. Right. How, how that, did it develop in the
1: community? It, it, it. I mean, that's a good question. It's kind of like a lack of attention um, and a lack of sense of efficacy. So one of the things that I argue is, you know, how can you have equal accommodations legislation for 40 years and yet have rampant segregation?
0: Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly what I'm asking.
1: <laughs> and one of the answers is that there's not a whole lot of African-Americans at the time. so you kind of think about it. Well, you know if you if there isn't a huge community if it's really only 5 5% of the of the total population right it's hard to stand up for yourself right and then even as the population gradually increases from 3.5% to to 5% or to 7% um where where is the sense of where's the ideas uh you know where is the ideology coming from that you deserve this and that you that you that you're going to challenge um And that this is absolutely wrong to to you know to have this kind of separation and this kind of deference, and I think that comes about um in large part because of the war mm-hmm. and that people take this you know the the uh, the idea about mobilizing for democracy and mobilizing against fascism and against Nazism. And it's clear that when you read the black press, they're very aware that that Hitler is a racist, that Hitler believes in theories of blood difference and in and in Jewish, you know, racial inferiority and that we are to fight this as the worst evil. And yet, how can we go on and um, proceed in a a segregated fashion Mm -hmm. Uh, and how can we, you know, you know, um, believe that there's difference between black blood and black blood and white blood uh, when we're donating to the to the Red Cross, so uh, people latch on to this contradiction um, and particularly using um, the African American press, which is growing in the north again because of increased accelerated migration and um, uh, wartime workers mm-hmm. uh, and so it's this combination of the of the newspapers and the the uh the propaganda of war that feeds into more and more challenges
0: so then if i understand correctly uh this kind of um I wanted to call it tacit racism but it's really open racism had simply hmm. become customary in Newark as it had in many northern cities right. Every, everyone knew it was a violation of the law but the African American communities themselves were small enough and uh, perhaps didn't have the resources available to them to protest in the way that we came to expect that they would in the yeah. 19 in the late 1950s and the 1960s
1: Yeah I think that's you? I think that's the case and so yeah uh, what what's what's interesting is that the kind of protests that we associate with, you know, Birmingham and Montgomery for for against segregated accommodations had a history in the North that was just as blatant, mm-hmm. um and, you know, not uh, was was very blatant. I mean, there weren't necess- there weren't signs, but it was very blatant, and it clearly had to be protested against.
0: Yeah, no, I think twenty absolutely... years before. Yeah, so. I mean, I I. I... I mean, my my own impression is that the attention of most Americans even today is on racism in the South and in mm-hmm. the border states, and that racism in the northern states is not really paid very much attention to. But or And that's true of the Midwest as well, because I remember my mom telling me stories you know, of racism in Wichita when I was growing up, and separate counters and se- separate accommodations for African Americans and segregated schools and this kind of thing, and how they thought it was simply just normal. Um, but you mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't really ever get any press. I mean, I don't know if there's ever been a book written about racism in Wichita, Kansas, but it was alive in well, uh-huh. I mean, and there's a ghetto there. Believe it. Or not. I mean, it's a ghetto. Right. We just always called it the black part of town. Black, right. We didn't call it a ghetto. Yeah. We didn't have that word, but it was the black part of town. And then, of course, busing came, and that brought everything to a head. And my number didn't cut up, get, get called, so I stayed in school. But my sisters did, and right. so she was going to be shipped into the black part of town, and my mother took her out of school.
1: And she's a right-thinking
0: liberal person. She just said, you know, I just don't want to do this. Because it right. advi- kind of violated these customs that they had developed in Wichita, and I assume in, in Newark as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, how was it the case that um, the African-American community mobilized in the 1950s, I guess, late 40s, 50s, right. um, to fight back against this, this sort of tacit customary segregation?
1: Well, I think that, you know, it's, it was a kind of confluence of uh, of National change. There was um, the the pres. You know, there were challenges to segregation of uh, and uh, and discrimination in wartime industries. Mm-hmm. There was continuing pressure from the NAACP, which is a big player in, in the national game and in helping out branches and founding new branches. Yeah, NAACP is a big organization, and it's protesting every form of segregation in the operation of the war,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and so. There is, I think that this leads the local protests, the everyday people who refuse to be, you know, refuse to be intimidated from going to the swimming pool, who refuse to, um, you know, not have uh, counter service at the department store, or not be able to use the fitting room at the department store. Right. They feel mobilized, and at the same time. There is a – there are local uh, – there's local efforts to have – to remember – I mean, basically to revive the anti-discrimination legislation Uh and to start enforcing it. And Uh so the state legislature, um, with the help of an African-American representative from Essex County, which is a county that's within where Newark is, Uh um, introduces – Um, strong anti-discrimination legislation. Mm -hmm. And so by 1945, you have um, a division against discrimination. And the same sort of thing happens in all kinds of states. So all of these divisions against uh, discrimination or um, um, councils on human relations or division of human relations, the things that That today, if you go anywhere and you are a woman or you're a minority or you're a religious minority and you don't get a job and you think it's because of your minority status, you just go to your city or you go to your state Mm -hmm. and you file a case. And this is all – all of this um, bureaucracy is really – built up in in the
0: 1940s and into the 1950s. I really I really did not know that.
1: Yeah. I really didn't know so all of so. these, yeah, all of this equal protection at the local and state uh-huh. level I I happened then. So this mm-hmm. wasn't
0: a federal initiative then. These were local and state boards no. that were set up.
1: Yeah. I mean some of it is some of the equal dis- um e- uh, employment discrimination um the you know the idea for it and the language and I and I'm thinking that the operation of the day-to-day um, administration of the of this starts with, you know, Roosevelt's executive order, right. that you can't have uh, discrimination in, in wartime
0: industry. Right, exactly. Since you do mention Roosevelt and wartime industry, one of the things that I found interesting in the book was that there were no riots in Newark during the war. And if, if my dates are correct, there were mm-hmm. large riots in Detroit, and was it Los Angeles in 1943? I don't really remember, but there were several mm-hmm. large...
1: Yeah, there were riots in, in different places, yeah. And uh, why, why
0: not in Newark? Why didn't um, any riot break out there in '43? Uh, You know, I or is that the next book? (laughs) (laughs) Why no riots? Yeah, it's very it's hard to
1: say. Um, I I would guess that people link the riots in Detroit to probably more African Americans. Um, in Detroit and Harlem, you know, larger percent, larger numbers and concentrations.
0: Because still, in 43, what percentage of the city was uh, African-American? It was still reasonably small. It was Really right, reasonably small. It 15, that. 20, 30
1: yeah. percent? I don't really remember. Oh, less right. than, yeah, less than yeah. that. I would say it's probably about, it's about 17 percent in 1950. Uh-huh. So in 40, it's probably
0: about 8 to 10 percent. It's just so funny to think about. I mean, almost it's one of the things that makes your book interesting is almost everyone has been to Newark Airport. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And has had some, spent some time in Newark. And, you know, from the perspective of modern America, Newark is just a black city. We just, mm-hmm. think of, we just think of it that way. It's right. Just, this is one of the black cities. It's like Washington, D.C. It's like, yeah. Yeah, It just but yeah, just, it just isn't that, that way happened. anymore. I mean, it wasn't yeah, that way. Yeah, it happened just, in 1965, I just, early. Yeah, no, I just find that astounding that, you know, mm-hmm. just think of it, you know. I mean, in, in D.C., I used to live in D.C., and it was Chocolate City, and, you know, everybody did that just the way it was. Mm-hmm. It was a city that was, you know, sort of run by African-Americans, but it it used to be that way. And I guess Newark is in the same kind of boat. And I just find that absolutely fascinating and where the historical perspective is is so useful here Mm because we can really see the city in a different way. So during these initial phases in which um, there was a sort of uh, resistance against um, these segregation policies, was there, um, and again, I'm this is sort of a leading question. Um, mm-hmm. This is before uh, the development of militancy. W- were there kind of accommodationist politicians and people that wanted to work within the system in order to change things for the benefit of African-Americans? I'm thinking about the late 50s.
1: Yeah. Um, I, I think that the way that I talk about it is not as I, – I mean, I think somebody could w- walk into, into Newark or another medium-sized city in the 1950s and – and look at different, you know, multiple layers of political activities. Uh-huh. But in my narrative, what I see happening during the rise, particularly the big event for race relations in place in many cities, is the rise of urban renewal and public housing. Yeah, I
0: found that fascinating actually.
1: And I think that that's a. Mo- I think that people are very optimistic. They're throwing their lot in with the with the with the public housing and there's there's not the the protest is for the integration of public housing, and that happens in in Newark at least relatively relatively it moves a pace and you get integration and so there's a sense of working within the system. um you get a city council member elected for the first time. you get a few people in the administration of the city and so i think that there's there's a sense in which people are throwing their lot in with integration and uh-huh. waiting to see what's going to happen
0: i mean i think also just again to to touch on the historical perspective here and uh-huh. one of the fascinating things about your book I, I happen to know this as well but those large housing blocks that we see and now associate with blight were in the late 1950s and the early 1960s seen as the future uh-huh. they they were where everyone was going to live. Yeah. And they were thought to be a, really kind of a magic bullet for urban renewal. Definitely. And, and, and not, you know, Cabrini-Green, you know, and all right. the associations. They weren't like that at all. People thought, well, this is going to fix this problem. People right. are going to live cheek by jowl in these very nice modern apartment buildings, and uh, we're going to have racial integration, and pretty soon all this is going to be over. But that's right. not the way it turned out at all. That's
1: not the way, no, but it, it is, yeah, I mean, white administrations, Supported public housing in a in a big way, and they thought that public housing was was really uh, important. And the fact is is that the housing stock in Newark was horrible until urban renewal. Yeah. And people didn't have toilets, people didn't have right. heating systems. So no, this was absolutely. a huge
0: advance. So it was a huge advance. Exactly right. So um, gosh, we've had you on the phone for a long time already, and <laughs> we haven't even got to the riots yet. So can you talk a little bit about the rise of um, uh, militancy
1: uh, okay. among this? Yeah, go ahead. All right, what I would say about the riots is that I had this kind of um this i you know I had this expectation that that the riots were kind of the equivalent of uh, nationalism that they were the expression of you know people being fed up with. Um integration and so forth, and I, I basically go very strongly against that argument uh-huh. i i i uh, was surprised by how the riots seemed to be such a departure from the impulse of the what we were just talking about with World War two, which was to be in the system to have absolutely equal treatment to to be to be you know completely part of the mm-hmm. culture to the you know and what I realized that it's really it was the same impulse and that if you see the riots as a, a another form of civil disobedience mm-hmm. in which people are asking for participation in the democracy mm-hmm. and that when you go back to look at the causes of the riots, people are always talking about. Economic disadvantage: people are poor, people are in the ghetto, and so therefore they rioted. Mm-hmm. Um, or people are really alienated, you know, black the black rage argument, and therefore they rioted. Yeah. And what I saw was that what it, what was wrong was that the that the local government that the that the city was not responsive to the grievances, to the legitimate grievances, and to the desire to participate in the system. Right. And so that and, and that when you add police brutality, you know, there's these strong-armed tactics of a an administration that is really not representative, that is all white in the city, that has, yeah. has just become 51%, 52% yeah. black.
0: That, that was a remarkable moment in the book. It, when it's you see quite, that, yeah. you know, there's, yeah. like, there, there's, there's no hanging on, really. And right. so that's
1: why, that's what happened, I think, yeah. the lack of democratic participation.
0: Yeah, no, I see just what you mean. I mean, it's it's a very interesting... It's a very interesting moment. One of the things I really appreciated about the book was the fact that you read the contemporary social science on these issues. Mm-hmm. And this was the heyday of positivist social science. And they would send you know, guys with horn-brimmed glasses out with clipboards on every corner to you know, count every manner of things. But mm-hmm. it, I, it seems to me that uh, they, they kind of got fixated on the black rage argument that there was something mm-hmm. dysfunctional about these ghettos. Right. And that that was really the cause of the of the riots themselves. How, how did they glom onto this idea and why couldn't they get off of it?
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, part of it is I mean, these are I'm, people
0: with big degrees from right. schools that, you know, uh, people really want to go to and they're yeah. supposed to be the best and the brightest, but they don't seem to have ever talked to anyone. Or I don't I don't I can't really explain it. Because it's that's hard bl- to explain. I and mean,
1: I've looked at it in different ways and it's it's not there's no easy, I mean one there's no easy explanation. One thing is that the different levels of representation you know the media image of it and LBJ's image of it and the certainly the white reactionary image of it is all to it is all serves to kind of delegitimate any kind of any kind of civil disobedience argument in other words there is nothing there is nothing legitimate there is nothing reasonable in what is happening right. so these are criminals mm-hmm. these are people who are just doing this so that they can loot or they're just suicidal. They're burning down their own neighborhoods for no reason at all. And so there's, I think that's part and parcel of, of, of something I'm very suspicious of, which is racism. In this case, political racism, that is just denying the agency and the, and the, and the, um, the kind of political will of, a group of people. Like these people can't possibly, you know, we understand that, you know, different people will, if they're not. You know, if they're not being properly represented, if they're not, you know, having consent and so forth, we understand that they will, you know, rebel in the name of democracy. But these people could never do that.
0: No, I think. That, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Also, I thought it was interesting how you pointed out, if I, I think you pointed out, mm-hmm. how the kind of prevailing nonviolent ideology of the uh, of the um, the SDS mm-hmm. and these sort of well-meaning folk who wanted to help uh, the, you know, uh, 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 end segregation, mm-hmm. how once it tipped over into violence well it it was automatically delegitimized in that way i mean that, right. that was it. they just weren't going to go there and right. and 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 i you know and i think that that kind of it helped it helped these kind mm. of well-meaning social scientists to, to, toward the notion that there was just something wrong with these people, that they yeah. weren't properly acculturated into, uh, you know, American society, and, right. that, and and that they were just sort of inveterately angry, right. and there was nothing that could be done to appease them. Right. Um, and yet
1: the history isn't that's not what was that's not what was going on. It's, there's a, just, you know, lots of deliberation. There's lots of people who are mobilized in Congress of racial equality. In the um, anti-poverty programs, the Great Society programs. So there's all kinds of people that are voting and are serious and are engaged, uh, that are part and parcel of of a civic culture, um, and who are just being, you know. And in fact, you know what's what what the, the other part of a riot is not just African American kind of civil disobedience, but the real issue of a riot is is white. Um brutality, white excess force, yeah, so that's what happens is if you have um white retaliation against stores, white mm-hmm. retaliation for an injured police officer mm-hmm. injured or or um, um murdered or not murdered but um killed um, um firemen, and then you have this you know uh wanton firing into public housing
0: right. Right, right exactly well, in in that sense, the situation clearly gotten out of the control of the authorities or and, and by authorities, I mean either sort of level headed black leaders or civic leaders themselves, because mm-hmm. then it kind of comes the war of all against all and it, and it and it becomes tit for tat yeah, and, and you see and that this comes out in the book where you know uh, it, it's um actually for some reason it kind of reminds me of a guy that was um he was a veteran of World War II, and he had he had fought on Okinawa, and he said, you know, you have this notion of a huge battle. But he said that really wasn't the way it was at all. It was there was a little battle over here where just these guys over there are trying to kill you, and you're trying to kill them. And there's a little battle over here, and there's just lots of these things right going on simultaneously. And our notion that somehow there's this global moment, and it is, is imposed by historians or by the press, mm-hmm. really it was just as you say. It was... Uh, you know, a group of people that were really angry because a fireman had died in a building, and they were going to go, and you know, pay back. It was payback mm-hmm. time, and they mm-hmm. were going to go find any black face they could find. Right. And, and there was no one that could control them at that point because the civic authority had broken down. Um, so, again, we've taken a lot of your time, but let me ask uh, one more question. What were the right. result- results of the riots? Say that again. What were the results of the riots? Um, I, you know, I
1: had a... An interview with somebody the first probably I think the first interview I gave on Newark back in in um, June, and he told me that he found this part of the book really depressing, and I think it is sort of depressing yeah. because the result of the riot is first and foremost the breakdown of of the kind of interracial public sphere that had fed the challenges to various inequities to various problems. With the government, yeah. so there was all kinds of really interesting cooperation and demonstrations against employment discrimination, against um, against housing policies, against m- more input into urban renewal, and so forth and right. so on. And the talk was not that of, you know, of nationalism. It wasn't that of black power. It was that it was much. It was at a it was a different kind of um, integration. People having more respect and dignity. Uh, and a whole uh, and many different other kinds of um, discourses that I talk about in the book. And then after the riots, there is a there is a lack of there's one thing is is that there's kind of a lack of um, a perspective on on how to talk about um, the African American participation in the riots. Uh-huh. So a lot of mainstream black leaders just are caught up in this discourse of violence and we can't stop the violence and violence is never violence is never good and so without really pointing out that who has been really violent is the state and is the white government right. so there are the black nationalists who kind of speak to that, particularly someone like Amiri Baraka right. at the same time he brings a lot of baggage of kind of of exaggeration, of mm-hmm. rhetoric and part of this baggage is a real anti-white sentiment and, yep. and not not in, in, a, in, a, in a rejection of interracial relations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so he brings that to the table as well. And so he sees mobilization and response to the riots in, in, in all black terms and excludes uh, the white left and sympathetic whites. And so it's very depressing. And then he becomes engaged in this kind of... This far right, this this dialogue and this fight with these people on the far white right, right, and that's kind of what this kind of polarization. Um, is what happens with the with black power in, in Newark in the sixties and
0: early seventies I see yeah well, no, that is a kind of sobering ending i mean I, I suppose it's not the ending because um maybe you could just say a few words about what's going on in Newark today because sometimes it's in the news
1: well the the the, the new Newark is a is a kind of uh is a is a kind of uh is Cory Booker who's the new right. recent mayor and he's a kind of barack obama figure yep. he's a uh, a Rhodes Scholar who went to Stanford and Yale, and chose to come back to—he grew up in Newark and came back to Newark to run for council member of the Central Ward, mm-hmm. and then eventually was elected to um, to the mayor a couple of years ago. And he's a more centrist, more moderate, and a kind of uh, post-racialist, yeah. post-nationalist figure who's trying to who's trying to bring you know real intelligence with policy matters. Um, and a, you know, an open arms towards, you know, multicultural, a kind of multicultural dialogue. And I think that's where the future is
0: (laughs) in Newark. Definitely. You've been listening to an interview with Kevin Mumford about his book, Newark, A History of Race, Rights and Riots in America on New Books in History. I'm the host, Marshall Poe, signing off for this week. We'll talk to you next week.